Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, all aboard the Las Vegas monorail. It's the butt of jokes. It's been described as a useless vanity project. But is the monorail actually kind of great? We're here with writer and monorail enthusiast Eric Duran-Valle to find out the truth. It's Wednesday, January 10th. I'm Sarah Lohman, and here's what Las Vegas is talking about. Hi, Eric. Welcome to CityCast Las Vegas. Hey, Sarah. Great to be here again. Okay. Eric, do you love the monorail? I enjoy the monorail. I I like I liked I like my fair share of the monorail. <laughs> it's fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very measured response as opposed to unbridled <laughs> love. So, <laughs> tell us why you enjoy your fair share of the monorail. Well, you know, I think as someone who's grown up here my whole life mm. and, you know, someone who's consumed a lot of media and seeing how other cities work, wanting to see Vegas grow as a city, I've always been desiring more mobility options in mm-hmm. Vegas and, you know, more public transit. And the most uh, apparent execution of that in Vegas has been the Las Vegas monorail. Mm-hmm. When you drive down the strip, like, it's hard to miss it. Like, even though it's not on the strip, like, if you're driving, like, on Koval or on Paradise, it goes right over your head. Yeah. It's very futuristic looking. You know, Slash nod to the 90s is also what it, what it feels like, right? It's what the 90s thought the future was going to be, yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, and so in the past few years, you know, I've um, been trying to learn more about it and, you know, seeing it as a viable alternate option for traversing the strip. Now that I'm of age where, you know, I'm going to the strip and I drive, I now know that driving sucks. Oh, it <laughs> um, really and does. parking is even worse. Yes. And, you know, for frame of reference, you know, uh, just the other night I was at Resorts World and their flat parking fee is $18. I was um, at Resorts World last night and they don't take, I even was like, just trying to force my Las Vegas ID somewhere nope. at the machine. It didn't want it. Yeah. No. And like I've been feeling increasingly that some of the strip parking garages aren't very locals friendly even anymore. Like, yeah, you know, totally. Caesars to a degree. But in frame of reference, though, if there is an attendant at a monorail station and you show your Vegas ID, you get, a, you know, a round trip ride for two dollars. So it's like a dollar per ride. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's so an attendant actually needs to be there. And it's oh. got to be like within business hours of like, you know, like 7 and 7 a.m. and 6 p.m. Okay. But even if you have to use the machine after hours that they have there, it's 
for a round trip, which is still less than parking, parking. at Resorts World or anywhere. <laughs> like, I don't think anywhere on the Strip offers parking for $12. So tell um, me a little bit about what it's like to ride the monorail. I've actually never been, but planned to this weekend. Well, yeah, you're going to enjoy it. Um, it's cool. It's a nice little cosplay of being in, you know, a more <laughs> cosmopolitan city. Um, I can pretend we have public transportation. Exactly. That's how I felt, you know, when I wrote it at um, CES last year. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing you you notice, apparently, when you're in the monorail, is that it's got these, like, 90s print carpet seats. And then, you know, like, linoleum floor. And then, like, on the overhead, there's, like, some jazzy elevator music. And a guy who's trying to continually pitch you the monorail while you were on the monorail. <laughs> And it was like, congratulations, you're above the traffic. You know, saying stuff. It's like, guys, I'm already here. Like, you already got my money. Like, I mean, you don't have to keep selling it to me. I'm already here. But then, like, when you make that sharp turn and it has to stop, it, like, he he turns very serious. Like, the monorail has come to a stop. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, I had to reassure, like, the two tourists. The danger. Yeah. I had to reassure the two tourists in there with me, like, as normal, guys, it's fine. It's going to start back up in a second. Yeah. Um, but it's still fun. And, like, those quirks, I think, are very endearing. Um, you know, I've written metros and subways in a bunch of other cities, you know, like in the metro in Barcelona. And, you know, like, in you know, I rode around the L in Chicago. And I've seen how, like, cities that are more reliant on those systems are mm-hmm. built and like how apparent they are in their communities and how connected they are. And I, I think that's something that's still to be desired and longed for on the monorail. Yeah. But, you know, if your objective is that like you, you're going to the strip and you want to save some headache, like I think the monorail is a pretty good choice. Um, you know, I tell people about it and they start doing it. Like, you know, they tell oh. me, like, yeah, I went to see a Golden Knights game and I took the monorail. Or like, oh, we were having dinner at the Taco Bell Cantina. So we took the monorail because like, my hack, I think I might have mentioned this before, um, park at the Sahara, yeah. which is free. And then the Sahara has a monorail station built into it. It's like near where the Starbucks and the hotel check-in is. Like, they really hide it away. So I read your Desert Companion article, which I thought was really fascinating, beautifully written. You you take the monorail stop by stop and sort of talk about both the, the history, uh, the present, and maybe the future that never was. So... You mentioned actually that the monorail was planned the same year as the one of the most famous Simpsons episodes, I think. Well, sir, there's nothing on earth like a genuine bona fide electrified six car monorail. What I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. That's right, monorail. 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 There was sort of a kind of wave of monorails happening in cities across the country all at the same time, with Las Vegas being one of them. And I think that's what The Simpsons was kind of poking fun at. The Disney parks had just gotten a big facelift. And so part of that was like a monorail. And then suddenly a lot of cities were trying to do something similar to those Disney monorails. Yeah. Um, The Simpsons monorail episode aired in 1993. And that's also the year the Las Vegas monorail was planned. So can you give us a little quick overview of the monorail's history? Absolutely. Yeah. And I first want to give a shout out um, to two people who helped me a lot in writing Mm -hmm. that article, which was uh, Taylor Lane um, and Rick Vallada over at the Review Journal. Rick Vallada was, you know, just a a 
a real veteran traffic journalist uh, for Las Vegas, and he had a lot of really great insight, you know. Um, but yeah, basically, yeah, in the 90s, uh, it actually started as a way to connect the MGM and Bally's. Okay. You have to understand the climate in Vegas in the 90s was almost trying to emulate Disneyland to a degree, you know, with like the Excalibur and going for the family friendly thing. That's absolutely um, what it feels like when I look at it. It reminds me of like a theme park from the 90s. The company that made the the monorail train is the same one, I think, who made it for for Disney. I mean, that was the vibe of the strip in the 90s. Like, literally, they were they were um, stealing people from Disney. Um, exactly. Who worked from Disney to create our resorts at that time, places like Excalibur and, you know, all the cheesy ones. MGM. Exactly. The and original version of MGM that was, like, Emerald Road related, you know, Wizard of Oz related. Mm-hmm. You know, it was pretty popular when it first launched. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there were critics who ended up being vindicated by history about it. Um, but the popularity of it and more the promise of it um, was really liked by investors and developers and the county. And so they they agreed to expand it um, all the way down the strip. And I think the original intent was to put it along the center of the strip, which would make more sense. Yes. But there was a lot of opposition from casino operators who thought it would be noisy, you know, it would take people away from their casinos. And of course, you know, there's there was probably some opposition from, you know, taxi cab uh, companies mm. as well. Hey, it's David Figler, and one of my favorite food festivals is coming back to town. It's Vegas Unstripped over at the Palms Hotel on Saturday, May 18th. Over two dozen chefs from some of Las Vegas's most talked about restaurants creating original, unique menu items they've never made before. Chef creativity at its best. We're talking chefs from Partage, Esther's Kitchen, Milpa, EDO, and more, including this year's James Beard Award finalist Steve Kessler from Aroma. Tickets are $150 and are all-inclusive of food and drink, so you don't have to pay for anything once you're inside. No hidden up charges. I went last year, and it was so crowded in the best possible way. We got one remarkable dish after another, and while it was a little indulgent, here's the best part. The net proceeds go to local charities. So head on over to VegasUnstripped.com to get your tickets now. We'll see you there. So, you know, they built the monorail and it's behind schedule and over budget and it's having a myriad of problems when it starts. I think within the first few months, parts of it were falling off. I was um, going to mention mm-hmm. that. That seems that actually really was a callback to like the New York City uh, transportation system in the same time, like pieces mm. of bridges and infrastructure were just falling on pedestrians. But the monorail yeah. wasn't that bad, was it? No, like, I mean, one was that I think, like, it, it collided with an electrical wire, which caused some arcing, mm. but no one was hurt. The The most probably serious thing that could have happened was a wheel fell off the monorail Not into great. a parking lot. And, Whoa. you know, those wheels are big. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It, but it's funny that, you know, saying that about New York is like, those are, that's, that's pretty old infrastructure. Yes. And this was something that was brand new that was having these problems. So, like, kind of from the beginning, there was this feeling that, you know, like, are these growing pains or is this a forewarning of what's... poor planning, yeah. But, you know, it continues. And 
right around the Great Recession, you know, obviously every part of Vegas suffers, but the monorail especially because, you know, the liability companies that are involved with it and like the investors, you know, just are hemorrhaging money because no one's taking the monorail because no one's going to Vegas because no one has any money. It's right. 2008. And so it was uh, pretty much about to go under. And so up to a few years ago, the Las Vegas Convention Visitors Authority uh, bought the monorail right. because the main people who are riding it are convention goers. And, you know, Which is I, smart. I, I would. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And that's that's when it sees the highest ridership. You know, that's what Rick told me. And that's what the LVCVA told me when I reached out to them for comment. But coincidentally, the LVCVA, you know, is working a lot with the Hyperloop project. Right. Um, you know, the, the tunnels. And the main reason why there hasn't been much um, public transit development on... Um, Las Vegas Boulevard was because the monorail had a non-compete clause. Oh. Yeah. And so basically that that just meant that there couldn't be any sort of big investment on building another streetcar or train or something like that because the non-compete was supposed to direct people to ride the monorail. But now that the LVCVA owns the monorail, that means that the Hyperloop project isn't going to have to worry about that non. So the non. Clause. Oh, so is there still a non compete clause, or in this case, it just doesn't matter because they're both owned by the same company. I, I think that's pretty much what it is. Okay. Uh, I think it's that like even like they're not going to enforce it, is what it is. Yeah. In regards to the future of the monorail, it's not the brightest because the trains are very old, and the company that makes the trains, uh, Bombardier, does not. Bombardier. Exist I know the <laughs> yeah. same. They they make all the trains, right? Yeah. Yeah, they don't exist anymore. I Whoa. I, Where do yeah. trains come from now? Where do subway cars come from? I don't know. Which is kind of a shame because like those the track, you know, it's mm-hmm. a lot of real estate and like clearly a lot of work went into that. And so like I don't know if a company's just gonna try to figure out how to make a train that can fit on those tracks or if they're just gonna cut their losses and say, let's put it in this hyperloop instead. Wow, so, I really didn't think that yeah. like the future of the monorail was so dependent on such a like uh, tactile logistical factor in that mm. there's nobody making monorail cars anymore. Yeah. Wow. So what have been some of the issues with the monorail? Uh, well, I think a lot of it just has to do with a lack of perceived value uh, ah. from riders, um, you know, like outside of the conventions. I think part of it is just the connotation of Vegas as a car town to begin with. Yes. Um, that, you know, that's why before it used to be, you know, a lot of uh, a big draw was that we had free parking. And so, like, even that's not the case anymore. Right. People still think that way. You know, like, you rent a Ferrari, drive it down the strip. I think just, yeah, the main issue is that, number one, people don't see it, you know, if you're on the main strip, like the main drag of the strip. So right. you don't think about it. And accessibility is also a main issue. Having ridden in a lot of, you know, actual metro systems, what I've observed that a good subway, train, or metro station does, mm. it gets you in and out as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's like, a good it, point. Like, it tells you, this is the street. Street is this way. This way. And, or it's like, this is the train. Train is this way. So, like, there's a very good flow of people. When you are getting on and on board, the monorail is such an endeavor to do because you have to find 
where it is in the casino and then you know you have to traverse the station and all the stations look very different from each other uh, they have the same signage and everything and you know they have exorbitantly priced vending machines but when you're having a casino act as a metro station so to speak um you know casinos are designed to be labyrinthian you know there's they're supposed to get you lost and they don't want their patrons being taken to another in theory to another casino yeah and so I think that just sort of simultaneous undercurrent of lack of support from mm-hmm. casinos along with open, you know, opposition from like, you know, taxi cab companies. And also remember that the strip is the county, you know, yeah. and, this, and once again, it's a matter of where city and county lines are drawn. And so if they wanted to connect it to downtown, they would have to, you know, work with the city of Las Vegas. Uh, um, right. And, you know, given that they put a big sign up right by the stratosphere, it's like, you are entering the city of Las Vegas now. Yes. Um, who knows how collaborative that pathway would be. But I think it's just overall a lack of um, motivation. I mean, you know, it was mm. it was built because um, Bob Robin. Um, you know, he was kind of the main drivers in getting it done and developed. Um, but then, you know, he passed away and like, mm. it was kind of like with, you know, the stratosphere, you know, like Bob Stupak wanted it to be Vegas world. And then he died and said like, nah, that Vegas world thing is dumb, but this tower is cool. Yeah. Um, so or I, even I think downtown Fremont revitalization, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh- so it sounds like it, it, the reasons that the monorail like didn't really take off are sort of multitudinous, that it has to do with like city and county being able to work together. It has mm-hmm. to do with that the monorail, you don't even really see it. So how are people really thinking about it? It feels like mm-hmm. a secret when it should be public transportation. And it always is strange to me that the casinos thought about it as taking patrons away rather than bringing patrons to them. It works mm-hmm. both ways, right? Yeah. Um, but all those things together seem like a real mess. Yeah, I th- I think just accessibility and you know visibility are, are accessibility the main and visibility. Yeah. So is the monorail success where it is right now, where it's at in life? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it is what it is. So the the main point that I reach um, at the end of that essay is that the the worst thing about the monorail, you know, isn't that it's a little shaky or that you know it's doesn't exactly get you where you want to go. It's just that it's a vision of what could be. Like, you know, because, like, we're always speculating, like, man, what if it went to the airport? Or, like, what if it went by UNLV? Yes. Or, like, what if it went downtown? Like, you know, it's just a constant sort of tantalization, you know, tease of, like, man, yes. this is what we could have, but, you know, it's, it's a bummer that we don't. But... I, I recommend that every local ride it at least once to get an idea. And maybe that will fuel greater interest in transit in our city. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I want to pull out kind of on that one line that you wrote uh, in your Desert Companion piece, which we will also link in the show notes. Um, you wrote, when we lack proximity to another human being, our empathy for them evaporates. And I feel like that sentiment really resonated with me. Can you say a little bit more uh, from your perspective on the role of public transportation and empathy? You know, I was just talking about this with someone last night. Um, you know, when you're in traffic 
and you know the the person in front of you is driving slow it's not a person it's a 2000 hunk of metal that won't get out of your way yeah and you know so it's very easy to dehumanize other people you know who have their own problems and story and just kind of view them as an obstacle when you're in public transit when you're sitting across from another human being even if you're not talking to them just like seeing them and being in their presence gives you insight into someone else's life and you know what they're going through like you know i started riding the the bus to to work for a minute um you know when my car was out of commission and it was like a six minute drive um 20 minute bus ride Mm -hmm. um but like you know it was early in the morning and so like i'm seeing people who are wearing their work uniforms you know that i recognize as like you know, uniforms from uh, property on the strip. Or I would see kids, you know, who were like, you know, giddy, excited before school and everything. You know, you would see people carrying their groceries, um, mm-hmm. you know, on their way home or, you know, maybe, you know, a, a variety of people. And I think that's the the really big value of public transit is that just that exposure to other people and recognizing your place in a community that it's not something that should make you feel small. It should make you feel connected. Mm. It should make you feel like you're not alone. That's, that's why I think it's so important. I think that's why maybe sometimes people have trouble finding friends here because they feel like that isolation, the isolation of the car and then of your home and then like of a cubicle at your job, Mm. it makes you feel very disconnected from someone. Whereas if you're in these kind of quote unquote third places, whether it's a stationary place like a coffee shop or a public transit option, you gain greater empathy for other people. I think that's so beautiful, Eric. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. We'll link to Eric's lovely monorail piece, Rail to Nowhere, in the show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. If you enjoyed the show, give us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps other people discover our pod. And you should subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Las Vegas. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Until then, Monorail! Yeah, my favorite tra- public transportation moments are always when there's something else really crazy going on and you lock eyes with a stranger across from you. I didn't want to add that, that in. Yeah, you're having that sort of like, yeah. we're stuck in this together. Like, like oh, we're going to figure yeah. this out. It was too beautiful for me to make a joke at the end, but it's so true. <laughs> it's such a privilege to like connect to a stranger with like, the, did you see that? Is that happening? <laughs>